very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. To listen to tonight's interview, you know what to do by now. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. Or if you're a non-member, you can stream this program for the first three to four weeks. Just go to our website and click on the non-member section to download, to use the RSS feed and take uh, Veritas with you. Subscribe. And the same goes for Sanitas. It is also being streamed. Take a look at the schedule. It plays 24-7. From the book Wisdom of the Watchers, at the time of the revolt among the angels 203,000 years ago, Georgia was among those angels who aligned themselves with Lucifer and the rebels. She has remained on this world with occasional side trips to Zandana, another planet of quarantined rebel angels, since the time of the revolution, taking on the angelic role of Watcher. Riding together with tonight's guest, Georgia provides her personal account of the period on Earth from 39,000 BC to 16,500 BC. Georgia shares her experiences being present as the Lemurian civilization in the Pacific reached its pinnacle and seismic upheavals overwhelmed its island home of Mu. She describes the elaborate Pleiadian evacuation operation and the Lemurian diaspora, explaining how their belief system took root in India, Tibet, China, and South America. Georgia shares her words in part to awaken some of the 100 million rebel angels currently living their human lives, most unaware of their angelic heritage. She reveals how a mortal incarnation for a rebel angel is an opportunity to redeem her past and help prepare the way for the imminent transformation of global consciousness as the rebellion planets, including Earth, are welcomed back into the multiverse. Tonight's special guest is Timothy Wiley, a graphic artist and writer who specializes in the study of non-human intelligences, such as angels and dolphins, after a near-death experience in 1973. Timothy is the author of many books, including the latest one titled Wisdom of the Watchers, Teachings of the Rebel Angels on Earth's Forgotten Past. And directly from the high desert of New Mexico, right next door to Arizona, I would like to welcome Timothy Wiley. Hello, Timothy, and welcome to Veritas. Well, thank you so much, Mel. Uh, I know you were reading the back of it. Do you know, I, because my publisher writes that, I actually had never read that. And I was admiring how, um, how compact it was. 
about it. It was a very fine piece of summary. But also, of course, it outlines what a complicated situation, um, you know, the ancient past was. I mean, we've only got up to sort of, you know, eight or 10,000 years BC, you know, in our normal understanding. But of course, it goes way back from that. Absolutely. You know, beautiful words written by your publisher, I guess. But for those people who may not know who you are, I mentioned a little bit of you. But how do you become aware of all this multiverse? How did you choose to be born in London? <laughs> well, I guess I had some redeeming to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know I was born in 1940, you know, the, um, you know, just at the outbreak of the war. So mm -hmm. a lot of my early memories uh, are of kind of uh, bombs dropping and uh, hiding. And uh, I had my first experience with angels at that point, although I didn't know it until I was well into my 40s. Uh, but when I was, you know, when the bombs were dropping and I was hiding underneath the table, you know, and, and my little body would all cramp up and I would pop out of my body, apparently. And um, Georgia, the angel I know working with, comforted me and hold me until the bombs had stopped. So that was my first experience. But, I, you know, in my, um, when I grew up as a, a young guy, uh, I had nothing of this. I, I, was, um, I was pretty much... Uh, uh, an outsider and, a, and an atheist and a, a rebel and a whatever, <laughs> um, you know, and it, until I was in my 20s and, and studying in architecture and then a whole series of experiences kind of blasted me open. I guess, you know, one of the best ways of discovering God is, is, is denying God, <laughs> you know, because it really pisses God off, I think. So uh, that's what happened to me. Uh, God just suddenly intervened in my life, and um, that still really didn't make that much difference until my near-death experience in my 30s, and that, that rocked my boat completely, completely changed me, <laughs> as it would anybody. What happened? Well, I, I had been in a situation where I had a tremendous amount of responsibility. I was running a quite a large organization, and we were tremendously in debt, and I had to raise enormous amounts of money every month. And I just worked myself to death. I mean, it was, you know, I collapsed in my office, and I had a back being thrown over when I was a kid playing games. So I had my back had given up, my lungs had filled with gunk and, and I managed to kind of drag myself home and because I'm a kind of water guy I, I drew myself a bath and I just lay back in my bath and within a, a few minutes I mean even less perhaps uh, I was out of my body <laughs> I was I was being lifted up in the air extraordinary up and up and up and up and up I could look down the, uh, this wonderful valley beneath me and I could see this monorail a monorail car, for goodness sake, uh, was whizzing up this monorail. And next thing I knew, I was in the monorail. And it was, uh, it was wonderful things. And there was a, a black guy opposite me playing a trumpet. It was gorgeous. And I could see a, at one end of the far end of the monorail car was a very bright light. I could see a sort of figure inside it. I come to realize it must have been Christ, but I didn't announce himself as Christ. But he said, yes, you're right. You know, cause I realized I was dying. Uh, on my way up, <laughs> said, "You're right. You are dying." And he encouraged me to look down. I could see that I would just slip into the bath and drown. No big deal. Um, he said, uh, "But you've you've done what you came to do. You've accomplished what you came to do, which really surprised me. 
And she said, we want to give you a choice. You can either go on, i.e. go on and die, or you could return. And I gave it some thought. Uh, I realized if I went on, it was so extraordinary what was happening. It was so wonderful. And I realized, oh, you know, <laughs> I'm getting more wonderful. And it wasn't going anywhere. You know, it would be there when I did die. So I decided to come back. And when I... I I said, okay, I'll come back. And the whole visual field opened up and there were were rows and rows of angels singing and dancing. Oh, it was just fine. And of course, my arrogance, I go, maybe the Jesus made the choice, but of course, I didn't think it was that at all. Anyway, next thing I knew, if I'm not, not boring you or your audience, but next thing I knew, I had two angels. I didn't know they were angels. I didn't believe in angels at that point beside me. And they carried me across a great a great open plain to an enormous building that seemed alive, all sort of twisting and turning, and I was taken into the building, laid out on a, a flat slab that was like an operating table. Something came over me, I'm condensing it a little bit here, something came over me. Little guys were sort of whistling around, I, I guess they grazed or something like that. I could just see the tops of their heads, little dome heads. And then a female voice came up behind me on my right-hand side and said, this is going to really hurt, but it's only going to be a very short, very short time. And this thing swung over me, wham down into my tummy, and it really hurt, really hurt, but it was for a very short time. Next thing I knew, I was taken off that. I was taken into somewhere that I was told I wouldn't remember. And then I was brought back and taken back into my body. Do, 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 do. Like, you know, like that painting of the, of the, the nude coming down the stairs. Down into my body. And the water was cool. And I got out and I was healed. My lungs were clear. My back was okay. I, could, I, was, I, was, I was fine. And I've been fine for the last, whatever it is, 50 years. So um, something happened. You, you were healed in just in one moment? At that moment, you didn't have to wait months for the healing to take place. No, no, I got out of my bath and everything worked. And it went on working. That's what's so astonishing. <laughs> and when you say Georgia, is this what we call spirit guide? Well, I, I'm not. I'm Spirit guide is a fairly wide uh, thing because it could be an angel, it could be a spirit guide, you know, there are a number of different um aspects out there, um, but no, um, it's, uh, it's an angel, it's a seraphim, uh, who, you know, as our guardian angels are also seraphim, um, who, uh, you know, was one of the many, many angels who um, sided with Lucifer the type of rebellion. And the rebellion was really about, you know, a freedom of choice, a free, you know, an opening up of, of choice on, on planets, you know, that were really kind of taken care of by a centralized command system, if you like. <laughs> a centralized command system invariably never quite know what's going on, you know, out in the in the in the boonies. And um, you know, that's really what happened to us and these other thirty six planets in our system. And uh, and we've been effectively uh, effectively quarantined. Um, you know, normal planets extraterrestrials come and go and they have something you know, they have great sort of interplanetary communication systems. Everybody kind of knows who is who and where is where and angels, you know, come and go and everyone's aware of them. We're in this exceptional situation where we're very isolated and as a consequence, 
consequence of this, of course, you know, because we can't turn continually to our superiors and say, well, should I do this or shouldn't I do that? We have to make our own decisions. And, we, you know, we've brought a very hardy lot here. We're, we're, we're a strong crowd, um, which has also made us, of course, you know, very interesting for the rest of the universe, which is why now you know, the rebellion is coming, coming to an end. We're starting to get more visitors in the last 50 years or so. So 1973 is when this happened. How did your life change from that moment forward? Well, on a physical level, it changed because I, I got healthy. But I was locked into a very complicated situation that I needed to get myself out of. I couldn't just leave this, you know, the situation because I would have left a lot of people in the lurch. So I had to figure out how to work myself out out of it. And it took me, I think, another another six or seven years to fully get myself out of it. Um, although, you know, it took me about four years to get myself out of that particular situation and about seven years to assimilate intellectually and spiritually and emotionally what had happened. Because, I mean, I was a kind of believer in the sort of the way people are, you know, but I hadn't had the experience. I hadn't been confronted in this way by Jesus. I hadn't actually seen angels and felt angels and be healed, you know, by something I had no idea was going, <laughs> was going on. You know, so that took a lot of time to, to digest. And it wasn't until um, 1980 or so that I found myself in a new situation in which I was got involved with dolphins and extraterrestrials and ultimately angels again. And that really begun it. And then my first book, which came out in uh, 84, was called Dolphins, Angels, and Dolphins, ETs, and Angels. So that really kind of summarized, you know, my interest at that point. And so it's continued from there. Why do we always see cetaceans, uh, dolphins, whales, and so on? I think they're very, very special animals with an intelligence beyond what we can comprehend as humans. Why are they so relevant to the well-being of the planet? Well, there are many levels um, and ways of answering that. Um, I, I would say that intelligence is very different from ours. I think, I think it's a comparable intelligence. But, you know, they've been at it for a lot longer than we have. I mean, we've been around for about a million years, you know. Our intelligence is you know, about a million years ago. We're pretty much like ours now. Dolphins have been around for 35 million years with the equivalent intelligence. <laughs> you can do an awful lot of thinking in 35 million years. But of course, because they don't have hands, because they don't manipulate their environment like we do, they're much more focused on the inner world, right? So they travel on the inner world as we would if we travel out of our body. So they, they're very much citizens of a multiverse. You know, they come and they go. And, um, you know, being sophisticated in that, uh, that way, um, they're very much here... I mean, it's a difficult one to, to, to explain, but self-sacrifice, sacrificing oneself for the greater good is, is very, held in very high esteem in the, the larger universe frame, right? It's the best thing one can do if one's faced with it. Um, and so dolphins being very sophisticated on a spiritual level, you know, they, in a sense, are giving their lives to wake us up, are, are, demonstrating to us, because our oceans are, you know, the greatest vulnerability actually on the planet. If the oceans go, we're screwed, everybody's screwed. You know. If the skies get dark, we still have a problem, you know, we still have 
ways of dealing with it, but the oceans forget it. So, um, you know, they're here to remind us, you know. <laughs> um, what is their that. purpose? What is their purpose in terms of communication with, I guess what I'm trying to say is why can't, if a species such a, as, as dolphins and whales are so smart, why can't we devise a way to communicate with them? I guess there are some people who can. Well, yes, of course, I do. <laughs> yes, there are people who can. Right. But of course, what they tell us isn't really very welcome to a lot of people. You know, it's a pretty frightening, um, frightening concept. I go into it in, in my second book, actually, because I witnessed a dolphin um, beaching. And I was able to I was able to look into a dolphin's eye as it was in the process of dying. And I knew in those moments that he was in ecstasy. But it, 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 was, it, was, it was in heaven. It, it, it was the most joyful thing he could be doing. And I knew at that moment that, yes, there was an aspect of self-sacrifice going on. Now, there's also another level of motives, of course. I mean, firstly, not all dolphins and not all whales are extraterrestrial, you know, <laughs> whatever. You know, it's like some people are just people, you know. Uh, some dolphins are just dolphins. But we've got this unusual, you know, quite a large group of dolphins who are um, who come from uh, Sirius, right, well, military close star system. Um, and they have a particular um, cosmology, if you like, whereby they um, reach a certain point in their evolution they choose to incarnate as a dolphin on this planet, right? And then when they have finished their incarnation as a dolphin, they incarnate as a human being on this planet. And that is regarded by this particular lineage as being a really great thing to do. I mean, it's surprising for us. Anyone would want to be here. But as well then, this is a very important little planet. And it will become more and more important as the years pass uh, for all sorts of very interesting, complex, and political cosmic reasons. But suffice it to say that everybody wants to be here. And that's why we've got, I don't know, 120 or 200, I don't know, different um, uh, ET races now, you know, buzzing around and keeping an eye and trying to interfere if they can. <laughs> But they all kind of cancel each other out. I mean, it's very clever. Why haven't they intervened? Because when I look at this planet, I think it would be so much better off without humans, the biggest predator on Earth. Aside from, of course, a lot of native tribes around the world can coexist and, and, and let's say what it is, be nice to the planet. But here in the new, quote unquote, new world, we treat this planet as if we had another one to go to. What do they say about us? Well, who who the they you're talking about? Well, pick one, pick one of the many extraterrestrials, or <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, all of them, right? <laughs> well, um, firstly, it's not legitimate to intervene, right? It's, it's a sophisticated uh, culture cannot. You know, by overall kind of rules, just come and dump itself down on the planet and bully everybody into being good people. That's not the way it works. Um, you know, each planet is devised for uh, mortal beings 
who, you know, go through the change. We all go through our changes. What we're learning to deal with is basically opposition. We're de- learning to deal with polarity, right? Because polarity goes on and on, you know. We don't suddenly become one when we die. You know, there's always opposition, there's always polarity, because that's what, what is needed in order to work out our own, uh, you know, salvation, in a sense, work out who we are. Because we really, really discover who we are when we put ourselves on the line. And if everything's smooth and going beautiful, there's no line to put oneself on. That's why everybody wants to go to war to find out who they are, you know. So, you know, we can't intervene. Now, of course, they do intervene because they're a cheeky lot out <laughs> And in about, I think, 1934, I think, was one of the first of the modern interventions is when a, a group of kind of, uh, I guess, a rogue element of... Uh, uh, a particular uh, group um, had um, crashed a uh, vehicle uh, in the Black Forest in Germany. Um, and the reason for doing this uh, was to upgrade the German um, technical abilities. And basically, Germans spent up to the war you know, trying to um, make out <laughs> what this flying saucer was made of and everything. And, and they weren't that good at it, but they got, some, they got a lot of inspiration out of it. Um, and they might well have won the war, you know, they had spent even a little longer, you know, working out that stuff. But obviously what had to happen was we were falling behind. So uh, another group... Right, crashed a, a vehicle on the East Coast in, I think, 1942, I think. And then, of course, the Roswell crashes um, a bit later. Because you notice about Roswell crashes, the strangest thing is that we knew what to do. <laughs> it was that, oh, my goodness, you know, what, what, what just happened? Everybody came out there, you know, all dressed and right and got rid of the wrong people and you know, packaged it all up and took it away. You know, somebody had practice. <laughs> So, yes, of course, there's been interventions and um, some legitimate, some not so legitimate. But everything everything works for the benefit of the all. I mean, that's terribly important to realize. You know, there's no bad guys and good guys. There's people doing certain things which we might interpret as bad in order to produce situations uh, to bring other things together. Uh, it, it's a little more complicated than, you know, a very binary way of looking at things. Polarity. Know, good or bad, yeah. Well, you see, all my life, Timothy, I've heard the no intervention approach. I see the point of letting us learn from our mistakes. But if we are less developed, let's say a less developed civilization than the visitors, the mere fact that they're here and we're not there, I think renders them more developed or advanced. Wouldn't we equate this to a parent and a child? We, when we see a child grabbing, say, a piece of dynamite and uh, the child is ready to light it, we don't let the child blow up. We stop the child and tell them of the consequences. Isn't this what is happening to the planet? Take nuclear weapons. The children have found the matches and need to be stopped. It's a subtle thing, isn't it? Because you can't really interfere en masse because... People have to be let to do what they have to do. But let me tell you something that happened to me in 1963, right? Now, back in London, I was training as an architect. We were all 
absolutely terrified, right? We lived with the idea that, you know, the Russians were going to blow us up or the Americans were going to blow us up. It was inevitable. Not quite the same over here, but in England, we knew what war was like. We grew up in wars. We knew what bombs did, you know? So there I was walking down a, a rainy street, and I bump into a man. Yes, mid-thirties, maybe fair hair, a little shorter than I was. Um, and we do that little dance that people do, you know, I think. <laughs> you go left, you go right, you go left, you go, you know, trying to pass the other person. Right? And English and Americans often do it together because of the, the different sides of the road that we drive. You know, so we often go in the same way. Um, anyway, while we were doing this little dance, right, going backwards and forth, he looked at me very piercing blue eyes, looked at me right in the eyes. And he said, we can pick the rockets out of the sky just like that. And he clicked his fingers in front of my eye and he walked off. And in that moment, I knew exactly what he meant. I knew that he was an extraterrestrial. I knew that he was telling me something that I really, really needed to know. And it kind of changed me in a way. I didn't fret so much about all that. I, I realized, yeah, yeah, okay. It may be covert, but, uh, you know, no, 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 no. I think that this, if the Earth is a kindergarten, you know, for upwardly mobile souls, then what's the worth in destroying the kindergarten? There is no value in that. Right? So I would say we're probably not allowed to destroy the planet. Right? <laughs> They'll pick the rockets out of the sky. And I didn't realize, of course, anything about that until the 90s, you know, when information started seeping out about ETs, um, you know, circling all the, the silos, you know, and <laughs> turning off, turning off the... Timothy, I think I lost you. Timothy? Oh, now, now I heard. I lost you all of a sudden, the last five seconds. If you could say that again. Well, uh, you okay. know, in the in the 90s, it started coming out. I think there were six or seven incidents of uh, craft being seen over uh, silos, missile silos, um, and uh, they would <laughs> they would mess with everything or turn stuff off and on, you know, and just to show basically you know, who's in control here. Even in the 60s, I, I, this came out, I think, in the 90s. Did you been watching that? Well, the, but you had Malmstrom uh, Air Force Base where they had that happening in 1967. So this has been happening for a while, yeah. Oh, yes, that's true. That's true. But I think that, that nobody turned anything off there, did they? They, they? they just landed and everybody went out and sort of went, ooh, and uh. But the later ones, oh, I don't know when they were, I think through the 60s, 70s probably, um, you know, they, were, they would hover over missile silos and everybody would be panicked, my God, they're going to attack us. But all they were doing was just fiddling with a mechanism, turning stuff off and on. So, you know, <laughs> who do you think's in charge here? <laughs> but they exactly. could just come out and stand on the White House lawn and say, listen, you've got to stop all this. You know, they tried doing that with, with the movies, you know, that wonderful movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Remember that? Oh, sure, certainly. But why did they allow, say, for example, Hiroshima and Nagasaki to happen? Because that's, that's our business. You know, these, these are our learnings. You know? I mean, they were pretty localized. I mean, I'm pleasant for the people there, goodness me, yes. But localized. 
Well, and that, that's the thing. You know, some people think that it was nuclear weapons that were used, but right now Nagasaki and Hiroshima are thriving cities. There, there's no radiation there, so it makes me wonder what really was used back then. Maybe firebombs, but anyway, that's a different story. But Georgia, she has an, a, a guiding axiom, and you say she enjoys reminding us if, she says, quote, if you don't know the truth of your past, how can you make it any real sense of the present? And if you don't understand the present, how can you ever trust what is to come? Unquote. Well, this is one of the primordial questions for me. Tell us about what you have learned about our past, Timothy. Oh. <laughs> well, so far, so far I've got eight books. <laughs> right. So I'm not sure I can, I'm going to be able to compress it. Um, I think, I think if you could tighten the question just a little bit uh, now, it would be helpful. That's fine. Well, why don't we? Why don't we? Why don't we pick Lemuria and Atlantis? Did they really exist? And if so, when and where? Yes, Lemuria was not a was not a um, a continent as we we would think of a continent. It was a long stream of islands. Um, basically, I would say probably following the Pacific Rim. Um, up from New Zealand, I would say, or well off the coast of New Zealand, all the way up to the coast of, um, um, well, uh, I, you know, I, I guess if one follows that, uh, you know, the path of the, the, of the, you know, the Pacific Rim, the, 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 the volcanoes uh, that ring the, the Pacific on that the ring side. of fire. Yeah, the ring of fire. You pretty much, you know, straddle. I would say, or say, the islands would straddle that particular um, column of of, 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 um, of undersea problems. Um, but it, uh, well, it, it. I don't know when it when it was actually kind of extruded uh, up there, the volcanic islands, obviously, but they. They were uninhabited when the group um, started to uh, immigrate from um, the, not from China, but from further south. They immigrated across to the islands at about um, about a hundred thousand years ago, a hundred to sort of ninety thousand years ago, right? And then there was a long period of you know, people coming across on their rafts, you know, uh, and the islands, you know, grew and, and became the most, probably the most sophisticated culture we've had on this on this planet, I would say, in, in, in many ways. I mean, it had its drawbacks as well, but in many ways it was the most sophisticated. They were technologically very skilled, but their technology was very much related to air, uh, to wind, um, to various manipulations of metals. They were very fine metallurgists, for instance. Uh, they could have a certain degree of control over climatic, um, really bad climatic conditions that can exist in, in the Pacific. Uh, and they were able, through uh, the use of various different metals, by combining them in different ways, to be able to take the juice out of hurricanes before they really started. You know, they had a, a degree of uh, sophistication in electricity, for instance, but they used it by tapping electrical eels, electric eels. Um, so they would only use them for ceremonial purposes. Uh, anyway, this continued 
I think we say probably for about thirty-five, forty thousand years. I mean, that long. I mean, and then um, at around forty thousand, a little earlier than that, the most southern island started sinking. They had all sorts of issues uh, with. Um, what caused the sinking? Could it be that were the, the the poles melting, or could it have been simultaneous volcanic eruptions that displaced more water? Yeah, it was volcanic. There are certain certain um, volcanic activities which were brought on by comets moving, you know, a little too close to the planet, and I believe that that, that, that was one of the things that happened because it was a cycle of I think three devastations, right, over a period of I think ten thousand years, every three thousand years or so, which implies that there was a comet circling in some way that would produce that particular stress. Um, so they went kind of, you know, the, the, the southern, those southern islands went down first and then kind of crept up. And um, there were a lot of uh, diasporas, you know, as these sort of situations happened. There were a lot of diasporas moving around the planet, which is why a lot of these, you know, um, quite early civilizations um, were, were so spiritually sophisticated to that uh, you know, a lot of the Indian, um, a lot of South American cultures, uh, you know, were, were really very heavily seeded by the Lemurian uh, culture. Um, but there's also another thing happening. Because it was a fine culture, and because the Pleiadians have also always had a relationship with this planet, not because of this planet, because their teaching planet is on a higher dimensional level, but in this location. So they come here uh, for, for their teaching, their dull universe. Um, so they have a certain responsibility, uh, and they felt responsible for the Pleiadians, uh, for, for, um, for the Lemurians. And um, they, I think, they had three rescue kind of um, periods where they sent out these enormous arcs, and they would um, take everybody who wanted to go with them. Uh, to, I guess, another place, another world, another Earth. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I didn't go. <laughs> and, and Georgia didn't go either. Um, and But that left quite a lot of Lemurians, uh, you know, kicking around, you know, who who weren't quite up to sort of jumping on, on somebody else's space. So, so Lemuria preceded Atlantis? Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, by, by quite a long way, yes. Yes. I mean, Lemuria basically disappeared, had pretty much disappeared, I would say, by oh, 20,000 BC or something like that. And Atlantis was only just starting to sort of uh, get, in, get into action. In fact, a lot of the problems that Atlantis had were of Lemurian, Lemurians who had completely lost their faith because their faith was in, uh, you know, the sun and, and, and the earth, you know. And of course, they have, they've been let down, and they completely lost their faith. And this had very bad, created a very bad impression on early Atlantean, um, Atlantean life. The Atlanteans were were, were not a, a particularly nice crowd. They were essentially made their living as pirates. You know, they were they were tremendously good at boat building, and and they, you know, by the time of the uh, uh, you know, more modern times, I would say, you know, by the 7,000, I would say, uh, BC, you know, they, they were bringing in enormous amounts of, of, of copper from America. 
you know, chin from England, you know. I mean, that was that was the, that was that fueled that whole age, you know, of uh, Bronze Age, essentially. And Atlantis was located, dare we say, in the Atlantic Ocean. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, again, the Atlantics were uh, were a series of islands, not nearly as many as the uh, uh, as the other ones, but uh, a number of islands. The main big island was somewhere off the um, the Mediterranean limit. I would say probably about four or five hundred kilometers off the coastline. And then it would stretch down into the those islands, some of which still exist down there. Um, or, Caribbean? I beg your pardon? The Caribbean? Cuba? No, 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 no. no. We're talking really fairly close to the African coast. Okay. Those islands there, which still have quite a, a strong memory of, of, of the Atlantean culture. Um, but, you know, the Atlanteans also moved around a lot. I mean, you can see... Um, Certainly, evidence that they had been around in, in around our uh, south coast, you know, around um, America's south coast. Uh, you can see evidence that they would have brought the uh, the copper all the way down there and then shipped it from, um, you know, wherever it was uh, in the, in you know, south uh, southeast coastline of, of America and then shipped shipped it across. And then of course that rest basically produced the Bronze Age. Of course, there wasn't a lot of copper in, in, in around in Europe, and, and um, you know they didn't mine a lot of copper and gold. Yes. So what happened then? Because I, I keep bumping into these situations. For example, the Grand Canyon allegedly has a cave that even in 1909 was discovered that it had. Egyptian hieroglyphs inside, and now it's forbidden for even the U.S. Forest Service to enter. Uh, there is a a a, a, a a native chief uh, in the United States that had some uh, uh, Babylonian artifacts that were given to him hundreds and hundreds to his people hundreds and hundreds years before Columbus came along. So obviously, there was pre-Columbian travel. The question is, what happened? To the knowledge, seems to be there's a information gap between a point and when Columbus came along. Well, it's a gap that is made more difficult by, you know, the way we perceive uh, our in our history. You know, it's become very solidified, and I think you know the reason why nobody is really permitted to go in and see that. And, and we have, I mean, we have something here in New Mexico. Which was found relatively recently, which has a, has a, um, a Jewish uh, <laughs> um, scribing, you know, set in stone, which is like, you know, pre, 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 <laughs> uh, anything anybody knew about. So there yeah. you go. Yeah, there you go. So I think really, we, um, academia and everything has such a lock on on information. I mean, on the truth. Well, they keep on digging up these giants, you know, all over the place. <laughs> and because giants would completely upend, uh, you know, academic um, material, uh, it's, you know, kind of poo-pooed and found on, no, somebody must be putting all these bits together, you know. And uh, it never really, it never really gains, uh, gains traction. But of course, everything is now happening at once. Everything is coming out at once. 
you know, and, um, you know. But the Giants, Timothy, you keep opening, you keep opening doors that I didn't expect you were going to open since you're talking about Giants. You know, this is happening around the world where skeletons are being found. Yes, some are hoax, folks. But I have some pictures that a, the father of one of my listeners, he's from Iran, and after an earthquake a few years ago, they unearthed almost like a like a, a city in, in, in this, I believe, north or south of Iran, and they took pictures and there were nine feet women buried. So no, they, it did not come. It did. The media, of course, didn't show it. Academia keeps being silent. I hear that the Smithsonian apparently discarded some giant skeletons in the 1930s. The question is, Smithsonian has been sitting on this ages. I know. Yes, and the question is, why do they keep this a secret? Why can't we? If we talk about dinosaurs. Why can't we talk about another species that lived around? I mean, you have the Homo fluorescensis that lived in Indonesia. Why can't we talk about giants? What's the problem? I, I think there are, there are deeper dynamics at work, Mel. Um, I think probably what's happening is that we are, on a, a macro level, learning that we can really only trust ourselves. We can only trust our own perceptions, right? Because all these people... Everybody has motives. Everybody has agendas and lying in order to, you know, support their own viewpoints. So, you know, there's a fog of complete confusion. We have to be able to develop our intuitions so that we really trust what we know, right? And we all, you know, well, the thing about the truth is that it carries, right? It has consistency. It's, um, it's aligned with the way everything is working, the way the universe works, right? So the truth carries. You can hear, you can feel the truth if you're sensitive. The untruth doesn't carry. It fades out. It, it um, corrupts itself. It, it falls to pieces, right? So I think probably the deeper thing is we're all being very, very, and against a lot of opposition, of course, because people say, oh, you know, never trust your intuition. You know? <laughs> no. Absolutely. We have to learn to trust because, you know, we're moving into a, an area where you can't, you can't prove anything. If I see a flying saucer, I, I can't prove that I saw it, you know, unless there's half a dozen reputable people around the cameras. I can't prove that I saw it, but it did, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. <laughs> because, it, because even if you film it, Everybody's going to say that it's a hoax because right now everybody can prepare a hoax in five minutes. I know, I know. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, I think we have a real, a real stubborn aspect that we just do not want to be fooled one more time. You know, <laughs> it's like everybody's fooling us. We just don't want to go on being fooled. And the only way you can stop that is believing in yourself and believing in what you feel and what you hear. And the thing is, if you do that, if it's not true, it'll, it'll crumble if you have a good heart and your intentions appear. Untruth crumbles and truth carries you through. That's what got me where I am now, for better or for worse. <laughs> well, you said something earlier. You mentioned that we are almost uh, in kindergarten. If you look at planet Earth, we're kindergarten. And the way I see this, I think this is contrived because they, when you have people under slavery, the most important thing you can do to keep them as slaves is keep them ignorant. I think that there's this concerted effort to keep people in the dark like mushrooms so that we don't learn, so that we don't evolve, so that we don't ascend, if you want to use that term. There's always been the pressure of these two aspects, 
Right? We can see it in the conservative and progressive. People who want to keep the status quo and people who want to drive ahead. Now, obviously, every, every, every moment in life, we face this particular thing. Do I want to say something conventional? Do I want to say something that I know is true, that I know is going to perturb people? You know, we're always facing, do we love or do we fear? Do we face a situation with openness or do we face it with closeness? That's basically what we're here to do. You know, we get better and better at it. And frankly, you know, if you look at the, the, the overall sweep of history, you know, we are kinder. We are more thoughtful. We do go out and help people. You know, a few thousand years ago, so as hell, nobody was going to go <laughs> and help the poor people in, in, you know, in some country, you know, that were suffering. Um, so, yeah, you know, we are moving along, but it is a slow pace. It's a kindergarten, um, and, you know, most souls are new souls created here, you know, so they're young, uh, and they're just starting their eternal career, their eternal multiverse career. Some of us, you know, come from somewhere, you know, different um, areas, you know, and we arrive here, some you know, as a penance, <laughs> some in order to help people, some in order to work out their own salvation, you know, but it's a, it's a crowded and complex planet, and, and you know, when we say human beings, um, we're all human beings, but we have very different heritages. You know, a lot of human beings aren't reincarnated, for instance, don't, haven't, they're created here, they haven't lived before, bless them. And some of us have, and um, it hasn't necessarily been all that pleasant. Now, you mentioned diasporas for Lemuria, for Atlantis. One would think the technology if diasporas exist, you know, occurred, that the technology survived. Did it survive? And if so, why can't we replicate today, say, take one piece, the Giza Pyramid, for example, and all the other feats that, feats that, they, that they were able to accomplish back then? We've become so sneering about, the nat about what I would call natural physics. Right. And so, for instance, you want to lift a large block of granite Right. Well, you know, what they knew how to do was to make sounds right, which resonated at the same frequency as the um, atoms within that block of stone in such a way as to reduce the gravitational pull. Right. So, you know, <laughs> that's absurd to us. I mean, if a scientist is listening to me, he's kind of rolling his eyes. How could anybody do that? But they found ways of doing it, and they were so. I mean, actually, you know, it's not that it's not that difficult. I believe um, uh, that the uh, interior of of granite uh, vibrates something in the range of um, one thousand and twenty five hertz. Now, that's not a particularly high level of hertz. Now, if you produce, you know, with flutes or drums or whatever like that, you know, that level of, of, um, of vibration. You know, they had people who could sit on top of these massive bits of stone, tweaking, tweaking <laughs> the tiniest little thing, place it here, place it there, you know, and they would do it with tiny little tweaks. You know, that's referred to us. Wait a second, you said something interesting here, and I want to uh, uh, talk more about it, because when I think of, you know, years ago, nobody probably thought that we could 
we could uh, invent something that could cancel sound. And we have now headphones that can cancel sound. It's very easy. You basically invert the wavelength and you cancel the sound. Is this is it the same thing? Let's say 1,100 hertz is the molecular vibration of granite. If we do negative 1,100 hertz, are we basically uh, making it not weight anything? Is that what you're saying? Try it. Try it. <laughs> Try it. Interesting. Have you ever tried it? No, I know. I have no. I have had no cause to move large blocks of stone. <laughs> oh no! But I'm talking about maybe a pencil <laughs> or a pen. <laughs> I um, I I think it would be rather wearisome actually to try and get exactly the right hurt, um, you know, without knowing beforehand. I mean, I say one 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 thousand and twenty-five. It might be one thousand one hundred and twenty-five. You know, so. <laughs> it was, Probably quite a lot of trial and error involved for first timers. But no, I mean, by all means, if you're that way inclined. Now, what happened then to Atlantis? Uh, Lemuria was probably because of volcanic activity. It, uh, you know, when I think of the Yanaguni Islands in Japan, do you think they were part of Lemuria? Because we see these pyramids. No, I, I don't. I don't. I don't think necessary. I, I, it depends what age they were. I would say that was more likely Lemurian. Um, the giants uh, were. That's a Lemurian gene. Um, very large, uh, um, and and you can also sort of you know, see the diaspora from where those you know, giants are located. Um, you can see how you know very densely they were located over here. Because I think what happened with the American Indians is that the Lemurian came up from the south, right? Um, and then the the other tribes came over from the Bering Strait, came down. But they weren't as sophisticated as the one coming up from the south. You know, so that, <laughs> that interaction produced a lot of the, the brawls that we know. You know, the trouble the American Indian people for so long they just couldn't stop fighting each other you know i remember when i was a child and you probably remember this too there was a uh, this wrestler andre the giant and i used to think you know what is that why somebody is so big so so large so tall and then i found out that so many others around the world had that and met a modern medicine considered that to be a disease called acromegaly Correct me if I'm wrong, if anybody out there knows. But they called that a disease of a, gen a genetic uh, you know, mutation, if you will. But could these people be descendants of these giants? Oh, sure, yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's the thing about genes, is they get everywhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's what's absurd, you know, about trying to keep a particular sort of, you know, culture pure, genetically pure. It's if we're all going to end up, you know, a beautiful sort of goldy, browny color. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it works. Uh, these various different uh, genetic streams, if you like, all these various different races, you know, all bring, you know, some aspect of the game you know, that other races might have, you know, in diminished supply. Um, so, you know, it's all sort of brought, you know, it intended to come together, you know, to produce, in a sense, the perfect genetic human. I always ask this question, you know, Christianity, pick one religion. They say that we all come from Adam and Eve. But then again, why do we have 
the Negroid, the Mongoloid, the Caucasoid, the Australoid, where do they come from? Well, the Adam and Eve thing is a metaphor. It is a story, basically, sure. that the human beings told themselves and each other, you know, in order to basically have some fun around the fire at night before television came along. Um, it, it isn't true. Uh, I mean, we go back an awful long way. <laughs> we can start 6,000 years ago. Uh, you know, we obviously are, as a physical, our bodies are obviously products of you know, the, uh, the genetic uh, climb up through the, uh, up through the life, uh, the various different life forms. But this happens on, you know, on all inhabited planets, one way or the other. Uh, planets are made for people, not the other way around. Uh, it's people who are important, not planets. I mean, obviously planets are important, but it's people who, you know, were the ones indwelled by God, or the ones who ascend, who climb you know, up through the, up through the multiverse. Uh, so what happened to the, the two civilizations? Did they vacate the planet or did they immigrate to other locations on Earth? No, which civilization are you talking about? Which civilization? Uh, Lemuria and Atlantis. No, I, no. Uh, I mean, they just kind of um, integrated, uh, you know, as, as we all do. You know, what happened to the Greeks? <laughs> they integrated, you know, with the people who uh, invaded them. But of course, in Atlantis' case, nobody invaded them. I mean, they they they. Didn't. But what happened with their knowledge and their wisdom? Uh, some some continued. Um, I think a lot of the uh, Egyptian wisdom is derived from Atlantean wisdom, which was derived originally from Lemurian wisdom. You know, so that's really kind of, uh, you know, the, where it comes down. And of course, as it comes down, it loses its juice on the way. You know, so by the time you got to, uh, got to Egypt, I doubt very much if they were using sound to manipulate those stones. I, I would say probably by that time, they were, you know, they were doing it the hard way. Do you think the Egyptians basically got there? And the monuments were there already, and now, of course, they claim that they were the the builders, when in fact, the the monuments were already there. But the Atlanteans who probably left somewhere else. Yeah, are you there? Did you hear what I said? I, I'm afraid I, I missed that. My phone just cut out for a couple of seconds there. Um, what happened to the the, the people? Or what happened to the culture? You... No, I'm just saying that. Do you think the Egyptians, once they arrive in that area of the world, found the monuments already there, and now, of course, they claim that they built them. But if they did build them, why can't they re replicate them? Do you think that they just found the area already built? Um, well, when you see when the Egyptians arrived there, I mean, there were always Egyptians there. <laughs> you know, it was well, a the people, fertile area. Of, the people who arrived in the area of Egypt, the fertile, the, the fertile crescent, if you will. Well, they, they, they didn't arrive. They, they were there, you know, for ages. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, certainly arrived from the, um, the land of the two rivers, you know, and came. And then uh, the uh, stuff from India was coming across as well. You know, so information was flowing in, but there were always people there. Um, in terms of the particular, what you're talking about, I think the Sphinx 
was a great deal older than the uh, pyramids. I think the Sphinx goes back to about 10,000 BC. I think the pyramids were probably about three or 4,000 BC, not that old. Now, Christian, now what, what is the connection between the Pleiades and the people from Lemuria and or Atlantis? Well, as you know, as I said, after the rebellion, that was about 203,000 years ago, this planet and the other 36 planets, in fact, this whole system, was basically isolated. Right? So right, nobody was really allowed to intercede or interfere. Okay. Now, when Lemuria started going down, um, the Pleiadians, who had a natural sympathy for this planet because of their teaching planet, and a natural sympathy for, for the uh, Lemurians, because the Lemurians are on the right course, right, decided to intervene. I don't know if they checked it out or not, whether it was legitimate or not, but they decided to intervene and extract um, the good-hearted of the Lemurians. Now, when it came time to uh, the more recent, I mean, we're talking like, you know, from about 40,000 years to about you know, 15,000 years. So it's quite a long period. So it's fairly recent in those terms. Well, when the Atlantean situation came along, the Syrian <laughs> uh, had a rogue unit that tried to usurp the uh, political situation, if you like, on, Atlanti on Atlantis um, and tried to do... Atlantis had a system of, of god-kings and they had quite, a, quite an efficient system where they would share power between these various different families, five families. Is this, where, is this where the system of monarchy comes from? Um, um, no, monarchy is in a sense far older than that because it goes back to um, the first uh, intervention, if you like, about 500,000 years ago, where uh, a group of intraterrestrials intervened. And yes, uh, you know, many thousands of years later, they did interbreed with um, humans. Uh, producing, you know, these various different uh, uh, bloodlines. And, you know, the idea of the king, the, the god king, the noble ruler, you know, the top of the pinnacle, the top of the pack, is it, very much of a sort of a human weakness, you know, where, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're group people, you know, we, we suffer when we're not in a group. Um, and I think that, you know, that makes us vulnerable in a sense to the idea that somebody knows better than we do, uh, which is essentially the idea of the divine right of kings. You know. So that's kind of where it started. And as you know, as individuals get more, so you're going back to your, your parent-child uh, metaphor that you brought up recently, um, you know, just as a child gets more developed, more sophisticated, more able to take care of itself, you know, the, the parents can step away. Um, and that's essentially the situation we're in. You know, we're growing up. Uh, I think we're growing up, but we also have, we call them here, the powers that want to be, that want to keep us in kindergarten, even pre-kindergarten. And whenever we try to proceed to the next level, we're stumped. And I, perhaps... I think, may I reframe your concept there sure. a little bit? Because I think perhaps... 
at this point, it's not that profitable to look at it as a community, as a group, because I think it's more of a filter system. Yes, there are immense forces attempting to keep us stupid, to keep us down, but that actually challenges certain of us to develop the intelligence to outwit these people, to outwit these forces. And what's happening, of course, is more and more people are, A, a, seeing that we are controlled by these forces, which most people don't see, and B, realizing, hey, wait a moment, I think I can probably work my way and outwit this lot, you know. And by doing that, of course, you develop more and more intelligence, uh, which is what it's really about. Well, I think the people who are listening to us right now could be that that example you're giving are you know the people who are listening to us, people who think outside the box, people who are trying to connect dots and they're trying to outwit those powers that you call. There you are, exactly. And I don't mean outwit in a malicious way. I mean just simply learn to be able to live at full, you know, full speed and so like that, you know, and doing completely what one loves to do. You know, because that's that's really one's mission. <laughs> exactly. And, and be able to be, you know, cute enough to be able to avoid you know, the worst of what's thrown at one. I'm actually astonished. I, I, I'm astonished considering what I write about is that how very rarely I get letters, you know, from people, you know, who I probably actually, <laughs> I'm probably inviting you right now, who, you know, who swear at me and who say I'm awful and want to kill me. I'm amazed, you know, considering how controversial. But of course, what I realize is that people like that actually don't have the patience to read my material, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. But Timothy, we have to take a one and only intermission. When we come back, we just scratch the surface because we need to talk about what you mean by the Lucifer Rebellion. A lot of people think of Lucifer. They think of the devil, demons, etc. Uh, who exactly are the rebel angels and how did they get that way? And how do the Watchers relate to the, the rebel angels? And what are, who are, and what are the Watchers? All these and many more questions when we return. How can people buy the new book, The, the Wisdom of the Watchers, Timothy? How can people buy the book? Oh, how can people buy the book? It's a bookstore, I guess, or uh, my publisher in a tradition sends them. And um, of course, that uh, internet creature has them as well, whatever it's called. I can't Excellent. His name. <laughs> yeah, we have we have links on our website as well, where people can get them. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with my special guest, Timothy Wiley, discussing wisdom of the, the watchers. Very interesting talk. We'll be right back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, Earthing and grounding products, supplements, our USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy.